Like I've been given a second chance and this isn't by accident. This isn't something that I need can take for granted. I literally could have come out of that surgery with a big scar, but everything's still in there. And the doctor could have said, sorry, but you're terminal. That could have been the outcome or the outcome could have been the surgeon was daring. He tried these things. He literally ripped out all your insides, put them all back together and he saved your life. I had zero control of that moment. I had nothing to do with it other than I was the half dead guy laying on the operating table. So that moment, now you realize now becomes the recovery process, not just the recovery physically, but the recovery mentally, emotionally, because now you realize to some degree that you've been chosen to have a second chance. Thanks all for tuning in to Dreamcatchers, where we make things happen. Dreamcatchers was formally launched to unlock the hidden potential in successful, self-motivated individuals who desire to take their life's work to the next level but need support to evolve. We are a collective group of professionals with various backgrounds that use our talents to assist those individuals in realizing their wildest dreams by providing education, inspiration, and direction. This podcast is where we share the lessons we've learned along the way to catching our dreams and give you some context around the how and the why to each approach to put you further ahead on the journey to catching your dreams. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Dreamcatchers Podcast. I'm your host, Jerome, and you guys are in for a treat today. I've got Josh Cantwell with me today. Josh, how are things up in Ohio? Oh, man, it's great, Jerome. It's great. We're having a good old time. I just got back from three weeks with my wife and kids. Got a chance to get away from the business, think about the business, think about my life, spend an amazing amount of time with them. My daughter had a championship volleyball tournament down in Orlando. Then we hit the beach. Then we came back. We went to our campsite. So I'm on fire, man. I feel rejuvenated and I'm happy to be here. Whoa, wait, you slipped that in, but I don't think everybody got it. Three weeks away? Yeah. Yeah, man. We did five weeks last summer. I'm a big fan of long breaks. I was coached at a young age to actually take a week per month away from work. I didn't always do that, but I had a mentor that I worked with who encouraged me to do that and get away from the business. And as I get older, and I'm a pancreatic cancer survivor, Jerome, as you know, and I want to have like long time away so that I can make real deep lasting memories and do fun stuff that sometimes you can't do if you're just hustling for a long weekend to get away or hustling for a week to go on vacation. So I'm a big fan of long trips away and I'm a big fan of significant time away from the business. I get my best ideas when I'm outside the business and above the business. And that's ultimately I've subscribed to that where I'm willing to take, and in some cases over my career, make less money so that I could hire more people so I could have more freedom. Freedom is what this is all about to me. Not about the money, not about the houses and the cars. I've had all that kind of stuff. It's fun, but it's about the freedom for me. And I think that's ultimately the secret sauce and the freedom is getting away, man. So we do it for long, long weeks at a time. Whoa. So what type of business were you in early on where you could take a week a month? Because most people are hearing that. They're like, what is he talking about? Yeah. So out of college, I got into the financial services world. My dad was owned an insurance business where he was doing employee benefits. So he had big clients. He insured all their employees, health insurance, life insurance, disability, vision, dental, all that. So I was used to the financial services world. My dad almost killed me when I graduated from college, big expensive education, got into the financial services world. But I loved it because 
it was a hundred percent commission. I was working for myself as a 21, 22 year old. And so I bet on myself at an early age. And one of the early mentors that I subscribed to was a guy named Dan Sullivan, strategic coach. And Dan was all about getting away from the business to think about the business, create systems around the business. I subscribed to that super young, hired my first assistant when I was 21 years old. And I forced myself to take time off. And that made me be really, really productive when I was working. So I've done that now for nearly 20, 22 years. And it's probably, I just, I was fortunate to stumble into Dan Sullivan as a very young age. I was fortunate to subscribe to his stuff and still 22 years later has had a big impact on me. Wow. So did you leave financial services behind? Because I know you've got a really big real estate portfolio today. Yeah. In 2004, 2005, I went full-time into real estate. I left the financial services business behind. I loved it. You know, I, as a 24, 25-year-old, I was making you know mid-six figures, doing really well with it. But I was working a lot of nights, a lot of weekends, uh, like a lot of people, just hustling for money, hustling for income. Funny thing is, is, as a financial planner, I was like the worst financial planner ever for myself because I bought the cars and the houses and spent it all on vacations and going to the bars and chasing girls, all the wrong things. And, you know, but in 2004, 2005, I realized that my most successful clients did not have all their money in the stock market. They had their money in real estate. They had their money in income producing real estate. They own rental properties, apartment buildings. They own commercial buildings and leased them out to restaurants. They leased them out to you know, other residents. And so I got into real estate. I left the financial planning world behind. And so probably, again, probably one of the better decisions I've made. It's done really well for me the last uh, 15 years, but I bet on myself. You know, I bet on myself when I got into college to go into a job and 100% commission. And then I bet on myself again when I was making great money. And then, but I wanted to pivot into something else. And I bet on myself again, all the while knowing, Jerome, that I had certain skill sets, certain things that I was passionate for, certain things I was good at. And I was going to continue to reinvest in hiring everybody else to do the things around me that I wasn't good at. So I learned that at a young age and very fortunate to just kind of stumble into that coaching when I was in my early 20s. Whoa. So you're making mid six figures in your 20s and you turn your back on that to go do real estate? Like literally cold turkey. Like literally cold turkey. I remember in the fall of 2004, just not feeling the passion to get up and meet with clients. Every time I was sitting with a client, I'm like, God, I'd rather be doing something else. I don't know what I want to do, but not this. I didn't care about the money. I was just like, dude, this sucks. Like, so I remember that was a funny thing we used to talk about in our office about getting porched. And getting porched is when you have an appointment with a client, let's say at eight o'clock at night, they're a busy, uh, maybe a business owner or a couple high income earner, whatever. And they can't meet with you till the evening. And you drive like 30 minutes to their house. It's eight o'clock at night. It's raining. You go ring the doorbell. And they don't answer the doorbell. So you're sitting on the porch and they don't answer the door and you're all alone. You're getting rained on your expensive suit. Like you're like, I just got porched again. Right. And uh, this is before, you know, remember this is back in 1999, 2002. Like there wasn't all this technology. I just got my first cell phone back then. There was all this reminders for technology and texting like we would call them hey i'm coming over tonight at eight o'clock and they wouldn't answer 
then I'd get porch. So I just got sick of it, man. And, and I think that's, you know, ultimately, I think getting away from the business has allowed me to continue to rethink about what I'm passionate for and then to realign and say, these other things might be doing well for me, but I'm not passionate for them. I'm willing to walk away from it. I'll give you another example, Jerome. Just a couple of years ago, my coaching business in real estate, I was coaching residential investors. That business was doing six to seven million dollars a year in gross revenue with about a 15 to 20% margin. So making a million bucks a year just from coaching. And in 2018, I wasn't passionate for it. And I strategically wound that business down because I didn't want to be fake. I didn't want to be telling my students what to do and how to do it and not feel like I was doing it myself. I was pivoting then away from residential and a multifamily, and I didn't want to be fake and not authentic to my residential students. So I wound that business down to literally to the point where it was only making about six, 700,000 a year of gross income. So dropped by 90%. And my income went from a million to zero. And actually one or two years, we actually lost money because I just wasn't feeling like it was authentic, like it was real, like I could get behind it. And I reinvested into multifamily and I reinvested into rebuilding a new business around multifamily. And now that business has taken off like crazy. You know, those are some of the lessons, some of the things that have happened along the way. And I think a lot of it has to do with my you know, journey. My dad is one of my early mentors, Dan Sullivan, being a pancreatic cancer survivor. To me, if I'm not passionate for it, I'm not doing it. I don't give a shit how much money it makes. Wow. So how does the cancer fit into any of these things? And was that a pivotal moment for you from a life trajectory position? Because I feel like, you know, when you look deaf in the face, you get really clear about what's important. Yeah. Yeah. No, no question. Drum. I mean, I had to take six months off of work that year between the appointments and the preparation, the surgery, the recovery. I mean, I was told by many doctors that my surgeon saved my life on the operating table. Uh, I'll never forget the surgery was on November 21st, 2011. And I was in the hospital for 10 days. I lost 50 pounds in three weeks. But what really stuck out to me, like my surgeon not only took this basketball sized tumor cancer out of my pancreas and my stomach, but he took my gallbladder, my spleen, my entire stomach. He took out most of the arteries that were Back there were crushed. It rebuild all that. I had to take arteries out of my leg, out of my thigh, and put them in the, the back of my liver. You know, I don't have a stomach right now. Like all this crazy stuff happened. But what I remember most significantly was January 3rd, 2012. I sat with my oncologist and he went through the report of everything that happened. And he looked at me and he said, Josh, he said something I'll never forget. He said, Dr. Walsh, this is Dr. Ali, my oncologist, talking about Dr. Walsh, the surgeon. Dr. Ali says, Josh, Dr. Walsh is a daring surgeon. And I'm like, okay, what do you mean? And he says, you know, looking at this report, he said, most surgeons would have opened you up and saw how complicated it was. And they would have just sewn you up and sent you home and said, there's nothing you can do. I referred you to Dr. Walsh because I knew he was a daring surgeon. And he would try to do things that most other surgeons wouldn't even try. And I looked at him, I said, so Dr. Ali, you're telling me the only reason I'm even here 
is because Dr. Walsh tried something, did something. He was daring, doing something he probably had never done before. And he basically saved my life. And Dr. Ali said, yeah, absolutely. He saved your life because most surgeons would have opened you up and sent you home. And I'm like, holy crap. Like that was the moment sitting there in that little exam room. That was the moment that everything in my life changed. That was the second that I remember thinking, like, I've been given a second chance and this isn't by accident. This isn't something that I need, can take for granted. I literally could have come out of that surgery with a big scar, but everything's still in there. And the doctor could have said, sorry, but you're terminal. That could have been the outcome. Or the outcome could have been the surgeon was daring. He tried these things. He literally ripped out all your insides, put them all back together. And he saved your life. I had zero control of that moment. I had nothing to do with it other than I was the half dead guy laying on the operating table. So that moment, now you realize now becomes the recovery process, not just the recovery physically, but the recovery mentally, emotionally, because now you realize to some degree that you've been chosen to have a second chance. And so my father, who recently passed, had said to me back then, you know, son, you were spared for a reason. Like it's your job now in the second half of your life to figure out why, right? So the message, the main message, I think, to pass along, Jerome, to your, your people on Dreamcatchers here is I would love for them to have the same inflection point without going through what I went through, right? To have them have the opportunity to look at the challenges in their life, to look at all the amazing blessings that they've been given and to say, this isn't good enough yet. I'm better than this. I could do more. I could achieve more without having to go through what I went through because what I went through, then I was able to say, I'm I'm not operating nearly at my capacity. There's so much more I could be doing right now. That was the big takeaway from that major surgery. Whoa. (laughs) Wow. Okay. All right. So you don't come back full strength. You've got to build it back up. I know you were shredded. You said at one point you had like 5% body fat. Like there had to be impact to the business though, because I mean, you're the guy, right? You're a producer. So Talk about that journey and how the family was impacted because everybody's excuse for why they can't do it. It's because, well, I don't want to make these people uncomfortable, right? I don't want them to feel like they're going backwards and you're dealing with what is a catastrophe. I mean, this is catastrophic, right? Everything screeches to a hole in a lot of ways, but yeah, I mean, tell me more about how this impacted the business and then how you ramped because after this, you know, we know that you had the business that was doing seven to eight million in coaching revenue, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. How do so, you get from there to there? Because that's a long way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great question. So, at that moment after the surgery, just puts us in perspective. So, around the time I'm 25 years old, making you know really good money, decide to get into real estate, leave the financial planning world behind. So I go again, top of the mountain, back down to the valley, right? Then I start building my business again, primarily wholesaling properties, short sales, pre-foreclosures. We started doing live events and seminars, millions of dollars a year, all in the wholesaling, pre-foreclosure, short sale niche, 
massive events in Vegas with three, four, 500 attendees. Then I have pancreatic, get this diagnosis. I'm out of work for six months. My business partner and I decided to buy each other out right before the surgery, right before I was diagnosed. So now I'm back by myself and my business is crumbling because this is the second big inflection point. Business is crumbling because not only did I just me and my business partner just buy each other out, we wanted to do that, but now I can't even be there to build the business now with no business partner. So can't do live events, seminars. I can't really be very authentic with my audience because I'm at doctor's appointments all the time. I'm not wholesaling properties and managing my pipeline. I'm at doctor's appointments. I'm literally getting ready for this major surgery. So after the surgery happens, the big thing that happened, Jerome, was during the surgery, I had actually borrowed and worked with some private investors, got money for some rehab deals that we bought. And then I funded those deals, brought in third party to kind of manage them for me, boots on the ground while I was out. They knew I was going to be out. And then three, four, five months later, we sold those properties for about a forty dollars to $50,000 profit each. And I was never even there. I saw each property like three times. And that's when it dawned on me that I had been very transactional in my previous life. And I wanted to focus more on owning the asset and getting the funding. Funding, I now realized I was, even though I was in a hospital bed, even though I was recovering from major surgery, I had a little bit of freedom because I didn't have to go to the job site every day. I didn't have to be on site flipping this property. I didn't have to do the CapEx and the construction work. So then I thought, well, what if I could just do that again? What if I could just get another private lender to give me some more money to fund another renovation, flip another property? And it worked. And all of a sudden I had like $600,000. I was able to turn it twice a year. That was $1.2 million of fundings. That was about 12 deals a year, making about 30 to 40, $50,000 per property. And I started really thinking, okay, now I've got to understand what's going to happen with the capital stack with money. This is still residential, but I'm still, still thinking like, I want to own the money. I want to understand how to own the money. Now I'm starting to get passionate because I loved the financial planning part of what I used to do, Jerome, but I didn't love like the late nights. I didn't like the restrictions. I didn't like that I had certain products I could sell. I didn't like working weekends. I didn't like the fact that I had to rely on the stock market for returns, which was very volatile. Now I could put up a fixed note mortgage, structure that, fund the deal, and bring in the experts to do everything else. Experts for property management, experts for the rehab work, expert realtor to sell the property, this kind of thing. So again, I got passionate for something in business that allowed me to get up every day and love what I was doing, which is I'm like, I'm going to focus on getting the money. Then by 2014, 2015, we had so much private money because I was so laser focused on it that we had a big following of people that were buying courses and trainings on how to raise private money. But also now we created a private equity fund that I could scale money by lending it out and joint venturing with people, partnering with people. So at one point we had over 200 investments going on at one time, both residential and commercial, because we were doing it in a fund structure. And why did that happen, Jerome? Because I learned on the operating table not to be so transactional, to do deals with longer time horizons that were more relationship-based, that were not just all about how much money I could make today, 
but what can I do to make this repeat, 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 repeat with the same money? And so, you know, then we built up this private equity fund over 40 million bucks. We were lending it out. And all of a sudden I felt again, this passion for what I was doing, but still at this point, Jerome, it's a lot of residential lending, private lending, hard money lending, and some commercial. Then this, you get to 2016, 17, where I'm like, you know, I just really want to be in commercial all the time. I really just want to be in apartments all the time. And now I'm starting to get confused again, where my passion is all towards apartments, multifamily, commercial. But now I've rebuilt this again, the seminar business up to six, seven million. And now I got to rip it all apart again. So this was really the third time I went from a high income earner down to starting over. Did it again with short sales and foreclosures, 2011, a couple million bucks a year, down to zero. 2016, big seminar business, big private equity fund, but now I'm not passionate for it anymore. Rip it apart, back down to zero. And now here I am in multifamily and investing in apartments. And now I feel like I've almost found a permanent home, permanent home, finally, Jerome, because it's finally taken all the lessons I've learned, both from financial, real estate, pancreatic cancer, the lessons my dad gave back to me, my mentors gave to me about owning the asset, creating financial freedom, being passionate for what I do, taking lots of time off, multifamily, apartments is now the one thing that's allowed me to do all my favorite things and still focus on kind of one business model. So I've built and ripped apart my life and my business three times. And I think that's maybe the lesson here for your audience, man, is, you know, it's not always like you're going to build a business that's just going to last forever. That's going to be the same. That's going to create income forever and never going to change. For me, it's been about every five to seven years. I've had to create, become a whole different man with a whole different mission, a whole different passion, uh, and just learn from the previous and apply it to the new. I hope that makes sense. <laughs> this is amazing, Josh. Like, I'm sitting here thinking, all right, so here's all the things he's not saying because he's humble. Every time he tore the business down, he built a bigger building, right? So doing the transactions and selling financial services products, one level of income, half a million right? Then you tear it down, you go do the next thing, a couple of million. Then you tear it down, you go build another one, seven, eight million. And we're not even going to talk about the revenue that's generated from the real estate now in multifamily, just because you're doing things at scale. And so, because there, it's just a totally, it's a much bigger number, less transactions, but higher valuation on the transactions, which leads to bigger income because Mm -hmm. the asset can kick off more because of how big it is. What gave you the confidence to tear it all down? How'd you know you could come back? I don't know. I don't, I don't even think I knew I could do it. I just knew that something wasn't right. Like I was sleeping in more. I was even drinking more just because I just was, you know, kind of thinking I'm just, you know, just drinking more. I like scotch. So I drink more scotch. I'm like this, my, there was something unsettled in my soul that just said, this isn't what I want to do, what I want to be right now. Like, I feel like bigger, better. I want to do something more. You know, part of it, Jerome, I think is 
I'm still motivated by the things that have gone wrong. I'm still motivated by the girls in high school that I had a crush on that said no. I'm still motivated by, you know, I was engaged in my mid-20s when I was in that financial planning world and that engagement fell apart. I'm still motivated by the business partner, the previous attorney that I used to work with who, you know, he basically gave me his resignation and wanted out of my partnership. And it did not end good. It did not end smooth. And so I still feel like to some degree, like I'm trying to prove all those people wrong. And then as I've gotten older, survived cancer, beautiful wife and three amazing kids. Now those things, the kind of artificial motivations have gotten me to this point. And now that I feel like there's so many things in my world that are coming together in such a positive way, that are very congruent, it's because every time I followed my passion and what I felt was right, what I felt like I wanted to be pursuing, I knew I was doing well by other people. And I just thought the money would come. You know, it'll just, you know, the money will figure itself out. But if I'm not pursuing really what I can get up and get jacked up for, excited for, you know. I just didn't want to do it regardless of how much money it made. A lot of gurus, real estate gurus that sell millions of dollars of products and make millions of dollars a year. I did that, but they still do it even though they don't buy or sell a property ever. They're just marketing guys. Now to me, that's gross. That feels disgusting. Like that feels like slimy. I don't want to be that. So if I couldn't stay behind it, I wasn't going to do it. Now going forward, Jerome, I think what's most important, I think one of the lessons I'm learning because we're always learning. I don't have it figured out, but one of the things I think I'm learning is that the world has a perception of us. We have a perception of us. And then we have a perception of what the world we think perceives us. So there's all these weird, and then we're trying to like project on a social media, what we are, who we are. None of that shit matters other than are you comfortable with who you are and what you're doing. That's all that freaking matters. You might have a spouse who doesn't necessarily super passionate for what you're doing. You got to be passionate anyway, because that's who you are. That's what you're built. That's your DNA. You might have a business partner that is a little bit different. You might have kids that are different. You might have parents, but you know, the world, social media, that all has different opinions of you. And now I'm mature enough to realize that none of it really matters. If I'm in my joy, if I'm doing what I love and it's authentic, it's real, it's le- of course got to be legal, it's legal, I'm not hurting anybody, then the money's going to come. And I think that, man, I did not know this lesson in the last 15 or 20 years. When I was younger, it was just all about hustling, making money, regardless of the fire and hell storm that I left behind me. It was all about making money and being successful. And then it was all about satisfying that desire for everybody else's approval, everybody else that said no, that was my motivation. That's okay. At least I had a motivation. It wasn't really the proper motivation, but I had a motivation that got me to this point, which now I'm much more mature about. And now like, I'm okay with buying an apartment deal that I might not make any money on for three years. Whereas years ago, it would have been all about how much money can I make in the next 30 to 60 to 90 days. Now I'm okay with buying something that I know is going to pay me long-term that satisfies my joy and my passion because it's what I'm passionate for. That makes me feel good about myself, right? It's not about now 
the kind of immaterial artificial motivations that used to push me to just go make money. That's where it's at. If you could find that kind of joy and not go through what I've gone through, that would be the ultimate you know, kind of lesson that I would pass along to someone else. What's up, tribe? It's your host, Jerome. I just want to let you know that we put together a free 15-point checklist for exiting the matrix. Jump on over to dreamshouldbereal.com in order to pick your free copy up. Let's get back to the show. What a shortcut, man. What a shortcut. You can jump out of the plane or you can get pushed out. It's totally up to you and whether or not you make that choice. And so I want to ask you about the rock bottom because I think most people would say when you were dealing with cancer was the rock bottom, but I don't think that was the rock bottom for you. And I could just tell by the way you talk about it, that that happened for you, not to you. Right. So was there a point where you were at rock bottom where you just like, I don't do any of this. Yeah, man. There's a whole nother part of the story that is very actually kind of recent. It's just a few years ago. You know, I was partners with my brother. My brother was a minority partner, but handled a lot of our renovation work on a lot of our residential rehabs. And I was getting out of the residential stuff and pivoting to commercial. And I found out that my brother, you know, had kind of misappropriated, you know, it was almost $750,000. And at the same time, I had entered into a new partnership with a good friend of mine from college. And we were doing these apartment deals and this private equity fund. And my wife, was not very supportive. She did not approve of that. She didn't approve of either guy, my brother and what he had done, or my new partner, because my new partner had just gone through a recent divorce. And my wife didn't, you know, didn't think it was good for me to jump into business with a guy that had gone through a recent divorce. So I very much felt alone. This is after the pancreatic cancer, after I had rebuilt, after we had this private equity fund. Now we were in the middle of the pivot from the private equity fund and resi over into apartments. And I find out, look, yeah, I'm just trying, I want to get these, these properties with my brother sold. I just want to get them gone. I don't care if we make money, but turned out that, you know, he had borrowed money from other investors that I wasn't aware of. And he had done some deals on his own outside of me. You know, he had always had, always had that, the ability to do that if he wanted, but it turned out that all, a lot of that money was gone. And now it was putting pressure on the deals that I had with my brother because all that money was somehow mixed together, right? And so I got to the point where, you know, I was like, there's a big legal problem here. Like there's a, there's a big like possible SEC issue. You know, there's a big possible legal issue here and we've just got to work our way through it. And at the same time, like I I hated my brother for what he did because I felt like I was authentic. I thought like I was, you know, above board and all of our stuff was being done. It was being done with our CFO. And then here, my brother kind of went behind my back, was doing deals on his own. He mucked it all up. And now it was going to have a significant impact on my business, which I had successfully rebuilt for the third time. And then I, my, you know, my wife was just chirping in my ear every day, every day about the thing my brother had done and this new partnership. She felt like I had I'd done it without her, you know, these kind of things. And I just really had to spend some time to think like, okay, like I don't want to get divorced. Also, I'm going to lose this relationship with my brother. My dad was also going through Parkinson's and my dad was my very real 
business mentor, not just my dad, but my dad was a businessman. He was the first entrepreneur in our family. He built a multi-million dollar company and employee benefits. He's now losing some of his memory and some of his physical capacities. So the guy that I would rely on for advice in business is also not there. He could mentally be there or physically be there because he's fighting this battle to the, at the end of his uh, eight-year battle with Parkinson's. So, you know, Jerome, it was, I very much felt alone. I drank a lot. I'll be honest. You know, I didn't, I wasn't an alcoholic, but I was definitely like just whenever I could get a free moment at late at night, I was sipping on scotch and kind of burying things in, in, in that. And honestly, the way out of it was forgiveness. The way out of it was when I finally got to the point where I forgave my brother, which took years, forgave him and was able to start over kind of yet again. Now, by now we had already owned a bunch of apartments. We'd rebuilt that like over on the side and that was already doing really well. But, you know, the wind down, this wind down plan that I had now all of a sudden had this major hiccup because I couldn't wind things down as fast as I wanted because my brother owed all these other people money. And I wanted to make it right for everybody, even though I had no responsibility for those investors. I wanted to make it right. And I felt betrayed. But I remember, you know, meeting with my brother face to face and him telling me that he was sorry and truly feeling forgiveness that I could forgive him and truly feeling like the only way out for him was to give him a second chance. Because if he didn't have forgiveness for me, for my wife, he wouldn't have moved on. He wouldn't be able to rebuild. So what service was I doing to myself and my relationship with my wife? What service was I doing to my partner and my new partnership in our apartment portfolio and our apartment holdings? What service was I doing to my brother, which was also impacting my mother and my dad who's fighting Parkinson's, what service would I be doing to hold this grudge any longer? How would I be serving any of those people? And so when I was able to tell my wife that I don't know if she could forgive him, but I was forgiving him. My mom was impacted by it. I don't know if my mom was going to forgive him, but I was going to. I don't know if my dad even knew we were trying to keep it away from him because of, of his Parkinson's, but he, he had a sense of what was going on. And, you know, even going back and talking to his investors that he, he didn't do it maliciously to like go buy Ferraris and big houses and go to Vegas and blow the money. He just mismanaged his money, period. He did it trying his best. But I went back to those investors and apologized on his behalf and said, if there's anything that I can do to help him, I'll do it. And so ultimately, forgiveness And realizing that holding that grudge was going to get me nowhere, taking that weight off my shoulder and now getting back into my passion and my joy of raising money and doing deals and building my portfolio, that was what was also not only going to help me repair my relationship with my wife, my brother, continue to grow my relationship with my newer business partner. Let my mom have sense of peace so she could take care of my dad. All this happens because I finally was mature enough to forgive, right? And just realized there was no benefit to holding a grudge. And since then, things have taken off even further. Okay, we bought more and more and more apartment buildings, so much so now that my brother actually is one of the contractors who turns units for us. 
So now he has consistent work so he can pay these people back. He has consistent, like he's really good inside of a unit, turning a unit, all the carpentry and the construction, all the stuff. And he's got guys that work with him and trust him and he's through it, but he's really good at that. Now he has a consistent place to go work. He's got consistent income, which he would not have probably had if I had not forgiven him. So the forgiveness became the solution that's allowed this thing kind of come back together where now I feel so much in my joy, so much in my passion every day, helping my brother, helping his wife, helping my mom, helping my current business partners, which I have an obligation to, building this for my kids, taking care of their high school, college education, all that stuff is paid for. When I was in the worst place ever, I could not see a way out. I could not see a way out. I didn't know how this was all going to work out. I have no idea. But I just remember thinking like, well, I could forgive him and hopefully that will work. I don't, I don't know. And literally I got to the point where it was not worth holding a grudge anymore. So I had to forgive him. I had to get that off my heart. And man, that has allowed our business to explode, my relationships to repair, uh, for me to spend more time with my kids to the point now where, you know, back, you love my brother, spent a lot of time with him and his kid. His son is my godson. I spent a lot of time with them now again. And, you know, I'm excited for this next chapter. Like, and at the same time, my father passed away and that has allowed me to just kind of restart again. Now, I'm not restarting this time financially, but mentally restarting because I'm in my joy, my passion, and I've just been mature enough to just forgive and realize, like, let's go fight a new battle for tomorrow. That was the word, Jerome, that was brutal, brutal. All this happened a couple of years ago. This is maybe the first or second time on a podcast I've even talked about it. Thank you for the opportunity. Thanks for asking the question because I, I feel this weight even more coming off of me as I talk about it with you right now. So thank you for that. Uh, you're more than welcome. And I think it's more for us to thank you for sharing that. But I had a similar experience. I had somebody, I had, actually I had two people in my life where I've actually used the word where, where I hated them, right? I felt like I hated them. And each time I forgave them, life changed dramatically. Like, you know, when you, I felt like there was a blockage in the river. I felt like there was a log jam. And it was like, as soon as you give up the victimhood and you take responsibility for whatever your contribution was to the situation that happened, where you feel like you were taken advantage of, all the logs start coming down the river and they come faster than you expected them to come. And you start to question whether or not or why all these things are happening for you now. And it's like, was I really that dumb? Like, was I really blocking it? And that unforgiveness is truly an, a block. And so for the listeners, you've got to let go of that stuff. you got to stop looking for reasons to be offended. And you just got to go and do things with the best intention. Now, with that said, you don't want to let people take advantage of you. You don't want to continue to let people take advantage of you reframe the relationship and if they can't find a way for there to be mutual benefit then in that relationship and create the distance and love them from a distance but you know if they can then as josh just proved you, you can figure out a way where folks work now you know josh your brother may be on the ownership side had things worked out differently but instead he's just participating and serving as a vendor and that's part of the reframing of the relationship because of decisions that were made. And there are consequences to decisions. They do impact the way that people engage and interact. But that doesn't mean that you have unforgiveness in your heart. That's right. 
Jerome, I think it, like when I was seeking chaos, when I was having pain and regret and hate in my heart, I only got more of it. And my out was, you know, to go work out or to just, you know, to stay up late and sip on scotch and watch sports. And then, but the next day I wake up and I still had all of it was still there. Like all the pain was still there. All the hate was still there. All the confusion was still there. When I got to the point where I'm going to forgive and I'm truly going to forgive, like I'm truly in a place where I'm not holding back a grudge and I'm not going to think about the past. And now I was seeking a future. I was seeking recovery. I was seeking joy. I was seeking love with him and with my mother and my wife, Lisa. I got that. Like when I was seeking pain and mad, guess what I got? That's what I got. When I was seeking recovery and joy, recovery of that relationship and love and happiness, I was able to now stop thinking about my brother and think about my kids. Stop thinking about this pain and think about how can I engage with my wife? It's a better relationship. Stop thinking about that. And how can I help take care of my dad and my mother and making sure she feels loved? Now she's alone for the first time in 53 years. How can I spend more time with her and have her spend more time with my grandkids? That's now everything has come back together because the focus is different, right? And I'm not saying you can't go from hate to love overnight. I had to get to that deep, dark, bad place and realize that I hated that. I hated that deep, dark, bad place. So that along with the fake motivation of the ex-partner, the girls from the past, the failures, and now just realizing like, hey, man, I'm somebody somebody has a big giant boat that I would love to have. I'm going to be happy with them. I'm not going to be envious or jealous. If somebody else has a bigger real estate portfolio than I have, great, man. I'm proud of you. Go get that. Like, And at the same time, like, because I'm focused on what we're doing, like, I'm going to get mine too. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I know it's coming. Like, I'm 100% convinced that everything we're doing is we're doing it for the right reasons now. And so much so now to the point where we started to rebuild some of this consulting and coaching and mentoring business. And just in the last six months, it's totally taken off because I'm, again, I'm back in my joy and passion and I'm authentic with those members and those students. And I don't really care if that business gets to five, seven, 10 million again. I just love the people that are in it. And we just bring in more people. I don't care if there's two people or 200. I'm going to have a good time. I'm going to do what I do and just teach them what I'm doing. And if it's huge, it's huge. If it's not, it's not. But I'm going to love it regardless. That's really the message, man. And I've had so many ups and downs. It's been a wild, wild experience. You'd love to say, man, I just wish sometimes like I've had buddies who are just in pharmaceutical sales their whole life. And they're like, they're just chugging along, right? Or they they sell, they're in some sort of manufacturing or they're, work for Sherwin-Williams and they're an executive. Like, that's cool, man. But that, and a lot of them are doing really well. They make good money. But I like all the ups and downs I've had, brother. Like, it's been fun. Like, I've learned a lot. And I think, like, I'm so much more well-rounded because of the good, the bad, the love, the hate, the up, the down. I don't know if I'd like it just being in one place for 30, 35 years like some of my buddies. There's no spice to life if you live that way. So I I hear you a thousand percent, Josh. As we come to the close, I got four questions. And I think these 
are going to just take this thing to the next level. Like this one is one of my favorite interviews to date with out of the 150 I've done. This is absolutely one of my favorite top three for sure to date. Right. All right. And I think your answers to these is just probably going to put the cherry on top of this ice cream sundae. So what are you most grateful for, Josh? Um, I'm most grateful for the support I think that I've gotten. I think to accomplish great things, you have to have a great support system. My wife, my parents, my kids, you know, grateful for that. I have to say my father in particular, the support that he gave me, the push that he gave me. My dad just didn't love me like a father, but my dad gave me tough love to say, like, you got to do it the right way. I think that support to me is I'm so grateful for that. Wow. Okay. Support. Most people don't have support. So for those of you who just kind of shrug your shoulders at that, just know that most people who are in pursuit of their dreams give up because they don't have the proper strategy and support. Yeah. That is why. And honestly, Jerome, I think I, I value it so much because there's definitely, as I just described, there was a time that I did not have it. So, and I know what that's like to feel so alone. And so when you feel like you're not only in your joy and your passion and you have support and people are pushing you to do more and be a more authentic version of yourself, man, that's the gas in the fire. It is. Josh, what dream are you most focused on catching next? Look, man, I think I don't know that I have a long-term dream and long-term vision. Business-wise, our goal was when COVID hit, we wanted to buy 950 units of apartments. It was a short-term goal. 950 units, the reason why is we make $1,350 of net free cash flow per unit. That 950 units represents 1.2 million of net free spendable cash flow. So that cash flow allows us to do things and chase dreams and those kind of things. To me, one of the things I absolutely want to do, it's not really a huge dream, but my older brother, Matt, I haven't seen for two and a half years. He came home when my dad died, but he's been out West. I want to go with my brother. I want to have like a two week or a three week, like the best vacation ever with the brother that I haven't seen for two and a half years. I want to go to the Grand Canyon. I want to go to like the big five parks in Utah. My brother loves to be outdoors and mountain biking. He never really had a ton of money, still doesn't. He's got seven kids. So I would love to, what I would love is to take my wife and kids, go meet up with his wife and kids and just have an amazing like two or three weeks of engaging and happiness and love outdoors, seeing the West Coast and these amazing, huge beautiful national parks, Yellowstone, those kind of things. I tend to be a more short-term thinker now, Jerome, because of the pancreatic cancer experience. So I tend to think of things in like one-year increments. I'm not really looking at five or 10 years from now because I don't know if I'm going to be given another five or 10 years, but I certainly hope I've got this next six months to a year. And that would be an amazing dream of mine to go hang out with my brother, all of our families and all the cousins together at these amazing national parks that I've never seen. So that's definitely on my radar and definitely a huge priority for me. Have you said that out loud yet? Is this the first time? No, no, that's not the first time. I've definitely been, I've really been focused on it and make sure we almost went there this past June and my brother ended up losing a job and then he had to move to Texas for a while and he's kind of had a lot of upheaval in his life. Now he's back in Utah. He's got a new job. Actually started that new job yesterday. Uh, So I hope that's going well for him. And I hope he's, once he's there and stable, then I can go visit and we're just going to tear it up, man. I just want to make some memories with him and his wife and my nieces and nephews. 
Josh, I feel like you just got to set the date. I feel like yeah. you got to just set the date get it on the calendar. And I mean, life's going to happen, right? But that memory won't unless right. you force it. And so I agree, dude. I appreciate you reminding me of that. November and July are our slow months in my family because my kids play club volleyball. Those are the two months where we're not traveling all over the country. And so November, I just got to pick the date, get it down, go in November, go around Thanksgiving. And get it done and send me pictures because yeah, I want to yeah. see it. I've been yeah. to the bottom of the Grand Canyon, but I haven't been to the other parks, but that's on the bucket list. That's outstanding. I can't wait to show those pictures because this is going to be amazing. It's going to be so amazing. And I think it's going to be rewarding and rewarding for you and freeing for him, for him to actually see that it's possible, right? Because yeah. when you're fighting, when you're trying to grow, when you're trying to climb out of the challenge, you feel like it's always going to be that way. Mm-hmm. And then when you get exposed to something different, you begin to ask different questions and you begin to see that it's actually possible for you. And I think you can open that door for him and probably change the trajectory, if not for your brother, for your nieces and nephews. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate that. Wow. All right. So last two. First one, what gift were you giving the world? Look, man, I think it's energy. I think it's energy. Like I think you could tell on this podcast, like I'm full of it. We go a hundred miles an hour, but very like well thought out hundred miles an hour. I'm not scatterbrained. I'm not, you know, shiny object guy. You know, people tell me often on podcasts or when I do a speaking engagement where I'm up on stage, man, you have a lot of energy and you lift up the room. Like you help me feel motivated. You help me get going. Like you, re- I realize that I can kick it into another gear because Josh, you just got so much energy. And again, I think it just comes back to that pancreatic cancer experience. Like I, I might as well go fast and hard and enjoy it and be loud and crazy and just share that with the world. And some people like it. Some people are like, dude, that's amazing. Like, I feel so motivated by you. Other people are like, damn, dude, settle down. I'm not, I don't move that fast. And that's okay because I'm comfortable with who I am. And so I think it's energy. Josh, I appreciate your energy. And I just want to throw some love on you for being social proof that dreams can and should be real. I think you're a dream catcher. I think you're the epitome of the word and you're not stuck in, oh, this is the way we've always done it. Or this is how it has to be done. You're willing to tear down things that are working and rebuild them. And you're willing to go through the valleys to see the highest peaks and the ability to leave the comfort behind to chase better is something that so few people are willing to do. So my brother, you're uncommon amongst the uncommon. And the final question is, what's the one thing you want the listeners to take away from this interview? Look, man, I think, I think the one thing I'll go all the way back to what Dr. Ali said about Dr. Walsh is be daring because I wouldn't be here unless Dr. Walsh was daring. Dr. Walsh has saved hundreds of lives of people who are given terrible, terrible diagnosis like mine. And so when I have an opportunity to speak to a group, I reference back to Dr. Walsh. You know, Dr. Walsh at some point in his career in medicine decided to be the best. He wasn't going to be just good at his craft. He wasn't going to be an average surgeon. He was going to be the best. He was going to study harder. He was going to work longer. He was going to follow other case studies and surgeries. He was going to speak and do lectures. He was going to do research. And then when it got to the point where he was presented with a case like mine, he was going to have the tools 
the confidence to be daring to try something new. And ultimately, in his pursuit of excellence, his pursuit of being the best at his craft, he could then, when presented with the most difficult case, which was mine, he could be daring. He could try something new that nobody else would have ever thought of trying. He could do something that he wasn't even sure that he could pull off. He was daring. And so when I think about Dr. Ali's words about Dr. Walsh, like he was daring, that's the 100% the reason why I'm even alive. And other people, hundreds of other people are even alive is because one man committed to excellence so that when he was given a special challenge, a special case, he could be daring, try something new, do something new. I mean, he literally put my whole body back together on the operating table, 10-hour surgery. And so I would challenge each one of your listeners, Jerome, to say there's another level of their life that they're not at yet. And the reason why they're not there is because they're scared. They're afraid. So they need to be daring. Just go. Prepare. Prepare yourself. Do the research. If you're in real estate, do the research on real estate so that when you have an opportunity to buy an amazing property, then you've got to take the chance. You've got to be daring to raise the capital and buy the property. If you're in some other niche, some other industry, prepare yourself so that when the opportunity is there, remember guys, good deals go fast. So when the best deal is there, you've got to be daring enough to execute on it. That's what Dr. Walsh did for me. And I'm literally, I'm coming up on my 10 year anniversary. Guys, pancreatic cancer has an 8% survival rate. I am one of the eight because Dr. Walsh was daring. That's what I think ultimately the one thing that if your audience was more daring, then I would be so privileged and honored to know that I had a small, small impact on their life. This is so amazing, Josh. Thank you so much for being just generous with your time, uber transparent, and giving me one of the best interviews we've ever had on Dreamcatchers. Oh, Jerome, man, it was an absolute pleasure to be here. Thank you so much, man, for having me on. And thanks for just the opportunity to share this last hour or so with you and just drive our relationship a little deeper, man. Thanks a bunch. For sure, man. And to the listeners, your dreams should be real. Until the next episode. Thank you for joining the tribe today. We would love to hear from you. Please don't forget to rate, like, and share. Perhaps someone you know could benefit from what we've discussed. Until the next time, remember that your dreams should be real.